Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. And in this series, we've been looking together at uh, Christ, and we've been wanting to see Christ as He is, and that means for us seeing Christ uh, in all that He is. We've been looking together at the book of Colossians, at Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we've been looking at that book specifically to answer two questions. They are the questions that people have asked from the very beginning, since Jesus' ministry to the very present. They've been asking the questions, who is this? What is this life? And what does this life mean for us? Who is this? What is this life? And what does this life mean for us as we find it? Now, we've said that this was inevitable because Jesus had such a a unique life, such an extraordinary life, people couldn't help but ask that question. But what we find as well is that when we read the New Testament, when we read the record of his life, we come away with the very same kinds of questions. It's telling, I think, that in the Bible, we don't find a description of what Jesus looks like. What we find are descriptions of his character, and it is on the basis of his character that people stand back and say, who, who is this? What kind of person is this? And what does his coming mean for life? I love the way Tim Keller summarizes the New Testament picture of him. And since I can't improve upon what he's written, I'm just going to read you what Tim Keller said. Is that fair? Okay. I see. Is that, is that fair? Okay, that's good. Keller says that as you look at the New Testament picture of him, Jesus combined high majesty with great humility. He's committed, the Jesus we see in the New Testament is committed to justice, but shows striking grace and mercy. He's tender, but he's not weak. He's bold without being harsh. He's humble without being unsure of himself. He's approachable, but has unbending convictions. He insists on truth, but bathes it in love. He has power without insensitivity. He has integrity without rigidity. He has passion but no prejudice, and he does what no one else can do. The Jesus of the New Testament shows truth while at the same time practicing grace. When I hear that description of Jesus and as I reflect on Jesus as he's found in the New Testament, I have to tell you, when when I see that portrait of of this life Jesus lived, I I always come away saying, that's who I wanted to be. That's who I'd like to be. I'd like to be passionate without being prejudiced. I'd like to be tender without being Weak. I'd like to be humble and still be sure of myself. These are all the things that I've tried to be, but I've never been able to be. You probably would see a lot of what you've tried to be in this picture of Jesus as well. What you've tried to be, but never really been able to be. This is the impression. This is the impact of Jesus' life and his character on those who 
take it seriously, at those who, who look at it carefully. And so whenever we encounter Jesus, just like those who encountered him at the very beginning, we can't help but come away with the questions, who is this and what does his life mean? What does his life mean? I want you to take your Bibles, if you have them with you, and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you'll find one underneath the chair in front of you if you're on the floor, or underneath your chair if you're up in the risers. I want to encourage you to find the Bible. Turn with me to page 983, and we're going to look together at Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 20. Now, to this point, this is what we've seen. This is what we've, we've discovered in the letter to the uh, Colossians. Paul writes this letter. He opens this letter with a word of thanksgiving to uh, God for who the uh, Colossians are. He's never visited them. He's never been with them, but he's gotten a report about them from Epaphras. And Epaphras says to, to him, look, these Christians, these believers in Colossae, they're extraordinary both for their uh, loyalty to Christ and their love for each other. In other words, they're faithful. They're faithful. They're faithful followers. Very loyal to Christ, even under pressure. And in spite of the pressure, they still love each other deeply. And so Paul says, on the basis of this report, I've got to tell you, I thank God for your faithfulness. At the same time, he says, I go on and I pray for some things for you, specifically for you, because I, I, need, I know I need to pray for you. This faithfulness that you show, this loyalty, this love for each other, I know that while though you're faithful now, that faithfulness can slip. So I'm praying I'm praying for this for you. I'm praying that you will come to a full knowledge of God's will. Because I know if you have a full knowledge, if you have the big picture of what God is about, if you understand more and more deeply as you live your life what God was about in creation, what God uh, experienced in the fall when humanity went its own way, if you understand what he was about in the redemption that he made possible through his son, and if you understand where he's heading in terms of the restoration of all things, that if you understand understand the gospel story, and if you understand it deeply, I know then you will stay loyal, and I know too that you will stay in love with each other out of your loyalty to Christ. So I'm praying that you will know the big picture, that you will know God's will, what God is about, what he was about at the beginning, and what he will be about at the end when all of human history comes to a close. Now, he says, I know that if you have this full knowledge, this deeper knowledge, then as a consequence of that, you're going to walk worthy of the Christ that you say you love. You're going to walk worthy of him. What you're going to do is you're going to be fruitful and uh, you will be uh, strong. Even when you face challenges or difficulties, if you've got that big picture, you know what God is doing, you know where God is going, you know what God has done, what he's doing and what he's going to do, you're going to be fruitful, you're going to be strong. And I know as well that you will wind up being very grateful as you live out this life and thankful because you will understand, watch, your place in God's story. And your place in God's story is, look at verses 13 and 14, he's qualified you, he's fitted you to uh, be a part of this story. He has 
fitted you, qualified you how? By doing two things. He's transferred you from the domain of darkness in which you once lived, where everyone lives, the domain of darkness, where you are under the, uh, uh, the, the capacity, you are under the, the power of sin and evil, your own will, your own flesh, and, and uh, you're under the influence of the God of this world that the scripture identifies as Satan. You're under the, you were under the dominion of darkness, but in Christ, he has transferred you, uh, Paul says, from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his own son. And so this transfer means that finally what God has done and the reason why you're qualified and the reason why you can be grateful and the reason why you can be glad is because of what Christ has accomplished as a gift from God to you. He is now the king you always wanted, you always needed. The king who was here in the dominion of darkness, he abused you, he used you, and he let you abuse yourself. This king, this king heals you, strengthens you, and sets you free for what God has for you. You now have this king. And as a consequence, I'm praying that you will live the life you should live, and that is a life of gratitude. Regardless of what comes at you, regardless of what comes to you, I'm praying that you live glad and grateful because you know that the God who has invited you into his story is going and is committed to finishing that story with you in it. Nobody can take you. Out of the story, God has put you in. Nobody can take you out of that story. And that ought to issue in a deep gratitude, a gladness, a gladness. My life is secure. In Christ. Now, what happens here is that Paul, after he's explained what God has done for the Colossians in Christ, the, the transfer, uh, the, the, the redemption out of the dominion of darkness, transfer into the kingdom of his son, he turns from talking, and this is important, he turns from talking about what Jesus has done to talking about who Jesus is now. He knows this is absolutely critical because what Jesus has done will not have the significance to us that it should have until we really understand who Jesus is. And that's why in verses 15 through 20, he turns, if you will, from what Jesus has done to who Jesus is. And so I want us to look together at what Paul says. And this morning, I want you to read the passage with me, all right? Are you ready? I'll wait. This is the last service. All right, here we go. Are you ready? Let's read together. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's where we got the title for this series, Christ Above All. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is, in my mind, one of, if not the greatest description to be found in the New Testament of who Jesus is. Now, I want us to spend some time today and over the next two weeks looking at who Jesus is. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know. Some of you are followers of Jesus, and I know, I know, I know. You're saying to yourself, perhaps right now, I already know who he is. And I know, I know, I know, you're probably thinking that, and you're, you're thinking, well, good, I can skip church the next two Sundays after this one, because I already have that. Well, perhaps, but perhaps, perhaps not. Lifeway uh, did a uh, survey of uh, American Christians and uh, asked them essentially who Christ was in relation to the Father and who Christ was in relation to the Spirit and, and who the Holy Spirit was. Uh, evangelical Christians, committed Christians, professing faith in Christ. And, and it turned out they aren't and weren't altogether clear exactly on who Jesus is. Not nearly as clear as they thought they were. So I thought I'd give you the survey they gave thousands of others. Did you get a card when you came in? You didn't? You did. Some of you are sneaking in the back door, I fear. Do you have your card? Do you have it? Okay, good, good. All right. Do you have a pen? And uh, there's one provided for you. Let's, let's take, let me give you this sixth question. It's just true or false. It's just true or false. Let's walk through this together. I want you to take this, will you? Here we go. Here we go. You ready? God the Father and Jesus Christ are equally divine. True or false? Don't say it out loud. First service, everybody was shouting out answers. It, it didn't go well. It did not go well. It did not go well. God the Father and Jesus Christ are equally divine. True or false? Jesus is partially divine and partially human. True or false? True or false? All right. God the Son is uncreated. God the Son is uncreated. Now, don't help each other. I see some of you. Ready? The Holy Spirit is a force or a power. The Holy Spirit is a force or power. True or false? True 
or false? The Holy Spirit is less divine than the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is less divine than the Father or the Son. The Father and the Son, true or false? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three names for one divine person. True or false? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three names for one divine person. True or false? True or false? All right, you got your answers? Good. I'll tell you what, the, what they are next week. So you'll have to come back. It'll give you something to think about all week long. In the, okay. But today, today, I, I want us to, to uh, ask the question, who is this and what does his life actually mean? What does his life actually mean? All right. Now, what we find is in this passage of uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 15 to 20, we find that Paul presents or identifies Jesus using three pictures. He pictures Christ first as the God that we abandoned. Then he pictures him as the life that we lost. And then he pictures him as the peace that we need. The God we abandoned, the life that we lost, the peace that we need. So that we can say Jesus is the God we abandoned. He is the life we lost. He is the peace we need. Who is Jesus? He is God. He is life. He is peace. But he's the God we abandoned, the life we lost, the peace we need. Today, I want us to spend time looking just at the God we abandoned and how Jesus is that God. And we want to look at two passages in particular. We want to look at the beginning of verse 15, and we want to look at verse 19. So let's do that together. Let's look together in depth at the God that we abandoned. Notice with me in verse 15, part A, Paul describes Jesus, he gives us the picture of Jesus as the image of the invisible God, and he says about him in verse 19, something that complements verse 15, he says, in him, in Christ, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so here, in these two passages, Paul gives us two profound descriptions of the identity or the status of Jesus. First, he describes Jesus as the image of God. And second, he describes Jesus as the one in whom, key phrase, in whom all the fullness of God dwells. Now, I want us to look at each of these carefully this morning. First, Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. You see that in verse 15. Now, let me, let me unpack this for you. When Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the word he uses for image is the Greek word icon, icon. It's a word that we still use to this very day. But that Greek word had essentially two different meanings to it. Icon could either mean something that represents another thing or a person, or it could mean something that uh, reveals or manifests 
another thing or another person. So it was either it could either be used in reference to something that was revealed or it could be used as something that was representative. Now, let me unpack this for you in uh, some ways that I think will be helpful. If you were to come into my house where Cheryl and I live and we were to usher you into our den, one of the things you would almost immediately notice is that we have a whole string of pictures in our den. Every one of them is an icon. Every one of them is an icon. And they are pictures of our grandchildren. We have no pictures of our children. Just our grandchildren. There they are. They are all on display. And if you were to say to me, Steve, uh, are those pictures valuable to you and Cheryl? And we, you know, we would say, yes, they're treasures. We, 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 we value those pictures of Charlie and Sellers and, and Elle. Uh, well, you, we treasure those. We, we enjoy when we come into the room looking at them. Now, what do you think I would say if I asked you the question, all right, if I could choose between having Charlie, Sellers, and Elle or having the pictures, which do you think I would choose? It depends on how the kids act, <laughs> is what some of you are thinking, I know. But, but I'm answering, not you. So what do you think, what do you think I would say? The children. I, I would rather have the real thing. I, I'd rather have the real Charlie, the real Sellers, the real L right there in that room. If, if, if I have to choose between the kids and the picture of the kids, I'm going with the kids every time. You would say, yes, but are the, do you not treasure those? Well, yeah, I do. But the reason I treasure these is because I love these, right? The value of this comes from this. These are icons that represent something that we love. That's the first use of the word. Now, let's talk a little bit about the second meaning, uh, to manifest or to reveal something. Uh, if you see someone that, that you know very well and you see them from a distance, you can typically pick them out from a crowd of other people around them by the way they carry themselves, by their profile, uh, because you know them and you know them well. The way they, they, uh, they walk, uh, the way they turn, uh, and, and then just the way God has designed them, you can pretty much pick that person out. And either you want to run to them or you want to run away from them, depending upon who they are. But you can recognize them because that person from a distance is an icon, is a manifestation or a revelation of someone that is. Does that make sense? I had the strangest thing happen about 13 years ago to me. Um, I was in Home Depot, so I was happy. Let's just start there. I was happy because Home Depot, I can always find something to buy whether I need it or not. There's just always something. There's just always something. I don't have to have a reason to go to Home Depot to go to Home Depot. Home Depot is Home Depot. Enough said. Well, 
I'm there, and I actually was there to buy something specific in Home Depot, and, and I was looking for it. You know how they have these long aisles and all these numbers, and, and you're trying to figure out, you know, what is this? Would I find this in paint? Or what I find, where would I, you know, I'm going through all that because I'm a man. I don't ask anybody in the orange outfits to help me. I'm going to find it myself. So I'm looking, 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 and I go around the corner, and I look down an aisle, and way down in the distance in the aisle, I saw an icon. I saw an image, and it made me gasp. I literally went, <gasps> my heart stopped. Now, I had heard through the grapevine that there was a man who lived outside of Lexington, North Carolina, that looked very, very much like my father who had passed away about two years before. Shocking white hair, olive color skin, all of the features. And that's why I gasped. I mean, my legs felt weak. I mean, I believed in a resurrection. I just didn't know it was going to happen at Home Depot. <laughs> I mean, literally, I, I looked down, I closed my eyes, I shook my head, and I looked again, and it didn't go away. And I thought to myself, Dad, what have you done? Well, the guy turned the corner. I had to, I had to, I had to explore this from, I had to see this through to the end. So I turned the corner and I started hitting right for the guy. It was an amazing thing. Now, I will tell you, the closer I got, yes, he had shocking white hair, he had olive skin, he had the features that my father had, but the closer I got to him, the less he looked like my father. And I could see that he was not an icon in the sense of a manifestation or a revelation. Rather, he was an icon in the sense of being a kind of reflection. And he wasn't really a, a good reflection up close like he was a better reflection from a distance. That's the difference between the two uses of the word. And what I want you to see here is that this icon, this manifestation of the invisible God is, is presented to us as Jesus by the Apostle Paul in the sense that he was a manifestation and a, and a revelation as opposed to a mere representation. So Paul isn't saying here what we might imagine that he's saying. He isn't saying that Jesus is just a reflection or some representation of God. He's saying that Jesus is the manifestation, the revelation of the invisible God. And here's what I love. Here's, here's what I've learned in walking with Christ is that as, as different from this man in Lexington 
The closer my walk is with Jesus, the closer I come in proximity to him, the more that I know him and the more that I engage him, the less I'm disappointed and the more I come to know what the living God is like. The closer I get to Jesus, the more encouraged I am. Which is very different from my experience at Home Depot. Which is why followers of Jesus, if they're wise, they're always pursuing Christ because he never disappoints. The closer we get to him, the more we know who and what the God that we live for and love is like. The farther you get away from him, the less enamored you will be with him the less you will tend to worship him authentically. But as you draw near to Christ, the closer you get to him, the greater and the richer will be your worship and your devotion. Because I I, I gotta tell you, Jesus never disappoints up close. He only disappoints far away. Now, this is, of course, precisely what Jesus claimed about himself. In John 8, Jesus said, if you know me, you know my Father also. More famously, in John 14, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The point is this, Jesus' character, his words, his deeds, they all show us clearly the nature and the character of God. And this is why Paul says here of Jesus that the invisible has been made visible. The unseeable has been made seeable. John the Baptist concluded similarly, while no one has seen God, he said, but God, the only son, he has made him known. See, Christians believe that we can't know God by our reason. We can't know God by our capacity for for logic. That if we're ever to to know the God who created us, the God who made us, he is going to have to reveal himself to us. He's going to have to speak to us for us to know him. We cannot know the God of the universe intimately unless the God of the universe wants to be known. He's got to speak to us. He's got to show us who he is. Notice with me verse 19. Paul calls Jesus not only the image of the invisible God, but Paul calls Jesus, notice, the one place, the one person in which all the fullness of God is found. Now, look, look at the end of verse 18. 
He says at the end of verse 18 that Jesus is preeminent in all things, or that Jesus is supreme, and that's critical. What he means by that is that Jesus is supreme above all created things, and he is supreme above all created people. And as we saw in our passage, he is supreme above uh, all of the created things, whether they be natural or supernatural. He is above all those things. Why? Well, verse 19 is the explanation because he is the place, his body is the place in which God in all of his completeness was pleased to take up residence. It's a description of Christmas there, if you will. Now, what does this mean? It means this. It means that the incarnate Son of God was and is still the perfect dwelling place of God because he himself as Son of God is God. And wherever he is, wherever he is at work, He is God to the full because he is entirely God. And so in this way, verse 19 completes verse 15. It helps us to understand Jesus as he is in himself. And what this means is that Jesus didn't just sketch out God for us. He didn't just give us a Cliff's Notes version of God. How many of you used Cliff Notes in high school or college? Come on, be honest. This is church. How many of you had a teacher or a professor who also knew Cliff Notes? Yeah, that's a bad bad experience. Jesus didn't give us a Cliff Notes version of God, of God's character, of God's revelation. Instead, Jesus, Paul says, is the full revelation of God. Instead, Paul says, Jesus is not just the full revelation of God. He is the final revelation of God. In other words, when Paul says he is the icon, the revealing icon, image of the invisible God, when Paul says in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, what he's saying is, Jesus is God's ultimate and final revelation of himself. If you want to know who God is, you don't need look any further. Anything other than Jesus is less than Jesus. All the roads from Jesus go lower. No roads from Jesus go any higher. Everything you and I need to know about God is revealed in Jesus. And any attempt to add to him diminishes him. Because in him is the fullness, completeness of God himself. So you can see for the Colossians, do you remember what the challenge was they were facing? Yes, they were faithful. They were loyal to Christ. They loved each other deeply. But do you remember what the challenge was? It was that some new teachers had come in and they were bringing to them a new and improved Jesus. 
And Paul's point here is, Colossians, you don't need a new and improved Jesus because any new and improved Jesus is always a lesser Jesus from the Jesus that we find entering this world at Bethlehem, living in Nazareth, ministering in that little range of space in and around Jerusalem, that Jesus who died on Calvary, the Jesus who was raised three days later, the Jesus who ascended. There is no improving on him. Only, pardon me, only a fool would trade that Jesus for any other Jesus or for anything else for that matter. Jesus is everything you need to know about God. And he is God's final word on himself. He's done. And he's not going to say to us anymore. Because what he said is already more than enough. So what does this mean for you and me? Well, it means this. It means that Jesus is supreme. Supreme over all things. And that means that Jesus is sufficient for all things. Because he is supreme over all things, he is sufficient for all things. So I have no problem saying to you this morning, are you disappointed? Are you facing a tragedy? Is your heart broken? Has someone hurt you? Has your life taken a turn you, you didn't expect? I don't have any, any problem pointing you to Jesus because what I know about Jesus is this. Because he is supreme over all, he is more than sufficient. In your time of disappointment, in your time of pain, in your time of brokenness and hurt, Jesus is more than sufficient. There is nothing he cannot do. There is no wound he cannot heal. There is no barrier he cannot break down, undermine, or find you another way around. There is nothing you face 
that Jesus Christ cannot overcome because he is God over all. Sufficient. More than sufficient. And you can try to substitute something for him. But just remember, I told you, all roads away from Jesus go down. There is no road from Jesus that goes up. So to our question, who is Jesus and what kind of person is he? He's the God that you and I abandoned in the fall. He's the God that you and I abandoned and have abandoned with our lives. He's the God that we've abandoned over and over again when we've chosen to go our own way. Jesus is that God. But Jesus is the God that we abandoned who refused to abandon us. <laughs> and that means, my friends, that Jesus is not only God overall made clear to us and coming near to us, but he is himself the gospel for all of us, the good news. You abandon me, but in Jesus I came after you. I want to remind you that he, he had every right to leave us where we were. He had every right to leave us in our sin. He had every right to leave us in our brokenness and our hurt. He didn't have to rescue us or deliver us. But the glory of the gospel is that God did what he didn't have to do. And where we abandoned him, he said, I refuse to abandon you. So that means three things. Number one, it means... But if you or I or anyone else really wants to know what God is like, all you have to do is look to Jesus. He is God's best word, his final word, Jesus. If you have seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. Secondly, it means that if you or I or anyone else would know Jesus, there is no other place to go except to Jesus. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other route. 
He is the image of God, not just one of many. And finally, it means this. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to remind you of what God is about in your life. I don't want you to forget this. I want you to see this and own it. Do you remember in the creation segment of the gospel, the scripture says in Genesis that God created man in his own, what was the word? What was the word? Image. Image. How curious. In his own icon. And that what happened in the fall was that the icon, the image of God that we were created in or created after got broken and twisted. We've got a little bit of it still, but it's pretty messed up. That in the redemptive work of Jesus, when he makes us his own, the work that he does in us after he saves us is to begin to restore the icon, the image of God in us. Now, we aren't icons like Jesus. We're not God. We don't manifest or reveal God, but I'll tell you, God's plan from the very beginning was that we be like pictures or pointers to the God who made us, both to each other and to the rest of creation. And so what God is about, if you're a follower of Jesus, is helping you to see Jesus as he really is so that you might know God as he really is, but so you might also know yourself to be what you should be and actually can be in Christ. He is fully God, and so In that way, we're able to see what God is genuinely like. But at the same time, because of his incarnation, he is fully man, showing us what we should have been and could have been had we not abandoned the God who created us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, what he's all about in your life is remaking not the revelation, but the representation of himself in you. He's making you more like Jesus. And that means if you're a follower of Jesus, you really do need to watch how you drive. You need to watch how you treat your husband or your wife. You need to watch how you treat your children. You need to watch how you treat your parents. You need to watch how you conduct your business. You need to watch how you practice your profession. Because you are called not to be an Icon like Jesus, no, 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 you're not God, you never will be. But you are called to be a representative icon of him, constantly pointing others to Christ, who in turn points them to 
who God really is and what God is really about in creation, the fall, redemption, and the restoration still to come. Jesus is God over all, made clear to us, coming near to us as gospel. Supreme over all, he is sufficient, more than sufficient for all we face and all we need. Father God, how I thank you and bless you. Words fail. Though we abandoned you, that you would refuse to abandon us. That you would come in your son. That you would do for us what you have done opening the way for us to come back to you. Lord, we do not deserve it. We can never earn it. But yet this is what you give to us. And the closer we get to the story and the closer we get to Jesus, the more in awe of Jesus and of you and your work as our Father, the more we stand in awe of the work of the Holy Spirit, the more we love you, the more we are devoted to you, the more we cannot help but thank you for qualifying us as your children. We bless you. Oh, that we could bless you more. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.